This is The Feed, York Region's only news magazine dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here. I'm Ann Romer. This edition of The Feed is brought to you by Peak Performance. If you are a startup, a small business, or even a mid-sized enterprise needing professional HR support, your solution awaits with Peak Performance HR. Not every organization requires a full-time HR specialist, and Peak Performance HR offers fractional, flexible, and cost-effective outsourced HR services tailored to your unique needs. Please visit peakperformancehr.ca. Coming up on the feed, teaming up for ALS, musicians unite for homelessness, and a day in the life of Canada's Border Services Agency. But first, peace on Earth. Humankind has been seeking it really since the beginning of time, but never has it seemed so important to so many as this year, and yet it remains elusive. Peace by Peace is a homegrown organization that focuses on conflict resolution and how to achieve peace in your everyday life, starting at a very young age. The work, the learning, the understanding begins with our children. Amandeep Sidhu was a student of emergency management and global conflict and has made it his life's mission to help change the way people deal with conflict, whether it's in a war zone or in the schoolyard. He is program chair, board of directors, piece by piece. He is our guest on the feed. Welcome. I'm so glad that you're joining us at this particular time in the year. Thank you, Anne. I appreciate it and uh, pleasure to be on. Peace is on the minds of so many people around the world right now. Why is it so elusive? Yeah, um, that's a great question. Uh, and it can be very complicated to answer. But, uh, you know, just thinking about it, if I were to simplify it to its core, I feel like uh, people tend to lack the ability to really truly listen to each other. And this could be because of all the bias and baggage that's been ingrained over time. And uh, we really just need to understand first that we, we all have baggage. Uh, we kind of need to identify what that bias and baggage is. And then as we begin to hear other sides, we have to really focus on the ability to listen as opposed to respond, knowing what our biases and baggages are. And we truly lack that ability. It has to be taught and learned and not having that is usually what leads to conflict, in my opinion. And why start with such young people? Your program, off, it's offered to elementary-aged students, and that's a pretty young group of, of kids. Why start there and then? Yeah, we, we actually teach our curriculum to grade 5 students. Um, we feel like that's a perfect age uh, because they can understand complicated issues. But at that age, like kids are still natural sponges. They're great at observing things, and they're still naturally curious problem solvers. As we tend to get older, we forget those skills. We take on baggage and bias, like I mentioned earlier. But a lot of the activities we do in our curriculum follow this four-step facilitation process where we first ask the kids when we lead an activity or have a discussion, we ask them to first explain to us what they saw or what they heard, describe mm -hmm. using the senses. Then we ask them how they feel about what they saw and heard, what sort of emotions come out. Uh, after that, we ask them, you know, why did you have these emotions? Like explain your understanding. Why did you feel the way you do? And then finally, we tend to ask the questions that, uh, pertain to what are we actually going to do about our emotions and what we saw? What is our plan? 
And so grade five is a great age for them to actively think about those, do some self-reflection, and then think ahead as well. Um, at such a young age, we hope that they can learn these lessons and then apply them as they go venture off to the rest of their lives. So Piece by Piece is really about peace teaching, and I took a look at your course curriculum, and it's fascinating, and I'll just mention a few if you can expand on them. Appreciating similarities yeah. and differences, exploring power and privilege, communication and empathy, inner power, exploring and responding to bullying behavior, and something so, so seems so straightforward, exploring conflict. And these are just a sampling of what you go through in your curriculum with these grade five students. Yeah, yeah. So most people don't know, like piece by piece, what it stands for is like playful exploration and active conflict education. And so a lot of these activities, we kind of phase them in such a way that they're games or activities. Piece by piece in, in general, we tend to focus on win-win games or win-win scenarios. So when you mentioned the list of these topics, a lot of the activities, uh, for example, we have a version of musical chairs where in musical chairs, instead of removing a chair where there's always one less kid and there's a loser and there's a winner, we have someone where we don't actually remove any of the chairs, uh, but the person who's left is in the middle and they need to share something they like to do. And any of the other kids who are sitting down that also like that, uh, stand up and switch chairs. So there's always someone left in the middle, but there's a positive twist to it and mm -hmm. everyone kind of wins. Um, and so a lot of our activities, especially the ones you mentioned in terms of like conflict and choice, we also teach that conflict really isn't good or bad and it's often a very necessary part of life. However, how we choose to deal with conflict is what makes it good or bad. And so we usually ask the kids to give us examples of good conflict and bad conflict and it's often very hard to think of good conflict, so we sometimes have to remind them, like, you know what, as a class, if you're thinking about getting a gift for your teacher, well, technically that's a conflict because all of you have different ideas. How do we get to a point where we can respect each other's ideas, come up with solutions, and move forward? Um, you know, there's another activity that I really enjoy. It's called three-step negotiations, where we teach students to, first, they need to identify the problem, and then together as a group, you know, list all the solutions that you will uh, think of. And then finally, as a group, you need to pick the solution. And this is done via an activity called Trip to the Moon, where you have a kid list everything they want to bring to the moon, and we'll usually give them five items. But what they don't know is every round we increase the size of the group, but the number of items stay the same. So they really have to work together to really identify, like, how do I, you know, understand what are our common items, what do we all want to bring, let's let's those down and then teach them negotiation and fun activities that encourage uh, group participation because at the end of the day, it's all about building communities in the classrooms, which will turn to lead to communities in your city, your country, and then finally as a globe. Are you able to monitor how effective these courses are? You've been at this since 1997, Piece by Piece was started in 1997. 12,000 elementary age students and their teachers have gone through these courses. Can you monitor mm -hmm. its success, the course's success? Yeah, yeah, I mean, we do have like metrics where we'll see, we'll send out surveys and in terms of impact. Um, the fact that, you know, year after year since 1997, this program started uh, with our founder of this version of the curriculum, Robin Sachs at University of Toronto. We've now expanded to York University um, and, and Kiel, and really we take our volunteers from those 
that go into classrooms to teach grade uh, five students. Um, the fact that for almost 25 years, uh, classrooms are always asking us to come back, teach, come back and teach uh, is a really good sign of, a, of our healthy organization. But because we've been here for so long, we've also had some volunteers who were participants of Piece by Piece as a student. And then when they went into university and became volunteers and joined the organization, uh, they went ahead and taught as well. And we kind of heard their stories and how really they took a lot of the lessons as grade five students. And now that they're university students, how they've kind of managed conflict throughout that. Uh, that's been a positive indicator. Um, we sent surveys out at the end of the year asking, like, you know, teachers, can you maybe give us an example of how you've reduced bullying behavior or conflict resolution in their classroom? And we tend to get general responses uh, with that as well. They feel that uh, the class itself is a general, generally a, in a, a better communicative state. Um, there's less conflict, less uh, group dynamics, and more us as a collective classroom. Um, and that's usually positive feedback we hear. It's interesting, it's peace teaching, and you're teaching our children, but in a way, once they've gone through the course, they can lead by example and teach us, the adult, <laughs> about life, conflict resolution, about peacekeeping in a way. I mean, is that kind yeah. of your ultimate goal, and, and should, we be, should we be more sponge-like, we adults? I 100% I agree. There, I I'm not, can't remember who said this, but, uh, you know, as a child, you teach your kids to walk and talk, and then the rest of the years after, you know, you go into, like, middle school, high school, uh, they say, well, you taught your kids the first five years of their life to walk and talk and be naturally curious, and then the rest of the years to shut up and sit down and listen to what <laughs> we have to say. So, uh, yeah, I think as adults, we tend to gravitate towards our biases and baggage and we stick into a one-minded thinking but being naturally curious naturally sponges always asking questions like how come i feel this way doing self-reflection as adults uh, would definitely lead to healthier minds and how we look at conflict in general uh, changes amandeep if you you could deliver a message to the leaders of wars raging worldwide right now what would you say what would that message be Ooh, that's a interesting question. Um, given that, like, if, if we think about like specific conflicts going on today, uh, I think I would like to say that, you know, if we look at conflict, a world won through battles tends to only lead to new battles. We never really end that cycle. So, as world leaders, we should learn how we can actively break that cycle. And truly, to do that is to sit down and understand what the side, the other side wants, actively listen to this. You know, people tend to say peace would be easy if we all thought the same or our dreams were the same. But I would argue that, no, they, they probably are the same. We just don't realize it because we haven't built enough of a connection with ourselves, our community, and our world to realize that, you know, we, we all want the same things. We all want our kids to have fun, have play. We all want you know, jobs so we can impact our community in a positive way. Like, we all want to dream and think big about what we want to do in the future. Uh, I would argue that all of these things are the same, but we haven't sat down enough to build a connection to really understand that amongst opposing sides. So if world leaders could 
could sit down and just really actively listen. Like how often do you see world leaders implement a solution where it's like, oh, we think this will work. And then they were like, why didn't it work? It's probably because you didn't sit down and actively listen to what the other side wants. So thinking about it in that sense, uh, I, I would I would hope that that leads to a more positive uh, future in conflict. After the break, Vaughn Mayor Stephen Del Duca looks back at the year that was and what's in store for 2024 next on The Feed. Do you have a story idea for The Feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of The Feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back. One final chat with Mayor Stephen Del Duca this year as we look back at 2023 from his perspective, Mayor of the thriving city of Vaughan for the past 13 months, and he will look ahead to what's in store for 2024. Welcome to the feed, Mayor Del Duca. Time sure flies. We are having fun, but there have also been some significant challenges this year. Let's start with the budget. For sure. Well, thanks, first of all, as always, for having me on the program. I, I really love the opportunity to chat with you, Anne, and to talk about what's happening in the exciting city of Vaughan. So we did just recently approve the city's 2024 budget. The annual operating budget will stand at just over $377 million. This will include a small, I'll say modest, property tax increase of 3% for our residents. And, you know, we, we spent a lot of time both the staff and the council trying to figure out how to, I'll say, thread the needle, recognizing that we have a lot of fiscal pressures because just as people's costs are going up in their own households, the city's costs are going up too. Uh, but at the same time, recognizing that our residents, like residents everywhere, are going through an affordability crisis. And so we didn't want to put more pressure on the households and the businesses that we have in the city. And so I think that when our residents look at what's happening pretty much everywhere else, almost everywhere else in York region and beyond, right across the GTHA, they will see that our tax increase, while you know, no one likes to increase taxes, that ours by comparison is significantly less than most other places. And so I feel, I feel that we did our very best to keep, so that we can keep delivering what we call service excellence, but still be very, very fiscally responsible. Was it a tough sell, though, to uh, obviously you and council working hard to put this together, but when it comes to the public reaction, what was their initial reaction? Well, the public reaction so far has been relatively quiet, but I think, you know, when you take a look at, and I'm not going to, you know, I don't want to make it seem like I'm being critical of other municipalities. I said this in my budget remarks, every community faces unique pressures, but many other cities or towns in York region are at 4%, 5%, 6%. We see places outside of York region that are close by, whether that's Mississauga or it's Hamilton or it's Milton that are, you know, five, six, seven, eight percent and beyond. You know, again, they face their own unique challenges. I think by comparison in particular, three percent in the city of Vaughan is actually very, very modest. What it amounts to over the course of, uh, you know, a monthly basis for the city portion of a person's property tax bill. It's somewhere in the neighborhood of about five additional dollars per month that we're asking the people of on to pay and recognize as well, like I said a moment ago, when you're at home and your cost to heat your home or put fuel in your vehicle or pay for your groceries or other materials, when it's going up, the same thing happens for a municipality. 
So all of the vehicles that we have running in the city, including, for example, our snow plows and the machines that cut grass in our parks, those require fuel. That fuel cost has gone up for the city as well. And that's just one example. So when a household's costs go up because of inflation, so did the cities. And we worked really hard to make sure that we were keeping uh, the tax increase relatively modest this year, but still delivering exceptional services, which, you know, is the most important part. Mayor Del Duca, transportation has been your passion all of your political life, and it leads me to this next topic. The Woodbridge Avenue construction project is now complete. It means that that cars and public transit can get back on the road. On time, on budget, main goal for this particular construction project, are you able to answer those questions? Yeah, so first of all, it was on time and it was on budget. I know, having said that, it was really tough on our residents who live in that part of Woodbridge and in particular, really tough on our on our small business owners who are in Market Lane or along Woodbridge Avenue or nearby. And this this part of Vaughan, this part of Woodbridge, is actually my neighborhood. I don't live too far away from Woodbridge Avenue, and I'm, you know, I've throughout my entire time living in Vaughan, I've spent a lot of time along Woodbridge Avenue. What we've managed to create there is actually quite spectacular. Not that long ago, we had a Christmas in the Village event that took place there, just as we officially reopened. Uh, that, that stretch of Woodbridge Avenue, beautiful pedestrian boulevards. Uh, there's a new um, signaled intersection uh, right at the sort of opening to what's known as Market Lane. We have a lot of seniors who live in that particular neighborhood in our city. And so having a, an actual lighted signaled intersection there makes it safer for pedestrians to get back and forth. And I know the local ratepayers and a lot of the local business owners that I've spoken to are relieved. They do like the final product. But let me just stress it is so important for our people, me included, to shop local and support our local businesses who've gone through a really tough time because of the disruption. Uh, but they're opening and they're, they're open and they're flourishing and we need to make sure that keeps happening. Well said. The Garnet A. Williams Community Center reopened on December the 10th. So why was it closed in the first place and, and why is it important to the community that it has reopened? Well, we were just talking about Woodbridge Avenue on the west side of the city. Garnet Williams Community Center is all the way over on the east side of the city in, in, in Thornhill. If I'm not mistaken, it's actually Vaughn's oldest multi-use community center. It was built back in, I want to say, 1984. Um, and so through all the years, you know, it, it's a building that needed to be modernized. It needed to be... You think about the designs that we had in the late 70s through to the mid-80s. It, 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 it fit really well for its time. Um, but it certainly needed to be refurbished. And it's a real hub for people who live in and around Thornhill. Um, I remember as a kid, by the way, even before we moved to Vaughan, I used to go and have hockey practice at Garner Williams Community Center in the arena. And so to, to be there for the opening a number of days ago, it was fantastic to see. It's a, it's a beautiful new, new entrance, a lot of new amenities in the place. It's so much lighter. Uh, there's a lot of natural light that now flows in. Um, and just the way the space has been uh, sort of separated out and restructured, uh, it really does have a, a very um, revitalized feel the second that you walk in the door. Better connections to the park that's right beside it. It's called York Hill Park. Uh, and just the day that we were there for the official reopening, just hearing from residents, they were so thrilled to see that it's open again, that it looks beautiful, and it's going to continue to serve them for many, many years to come. Time to look forward to 2024. How will you be ushering <laughs> in the new year on New Year's Eve and the first day of 2024, Mayor Del Duca? Well, you know, New Year's Eve is always a time to be with, 
you know, family and close friends. I'm some you might know this, and others might know it. I'm half Scottish. My mother is from Glasgow, and you know, in Scotland, New Year's Eve, which is known as Hogmanay, is actually a huge celebration. Historically, it's been just as large, if not larger, than Christmas. And so, there's a special place in my heart and my family's hearts for New Year's Eve. So we'll be together with family and friends at our house. My wife and I, most years, will we'll, we try to host, and so we're looking forward to some great company, some good food, and then there's a particular Scottish tradition that we still follow. It's called the first foot tradition. That's something that uh, it would take me longer to explain it on your program than I think we have time for today, but uh, I like to honor those traditions in memory of my own Scottish grandparents who I was very, very close to, Um, and just looking, like I said, to be forward to being with family and friends and recognizing what we've achieved in 2023 and really looking forward to a great 2024. And speaking of heritage and and really cultures and traditions, the Tamil Heritage Month, there's an event coming up on January 15th. Why is that important? Well, we did this for the very first time in the city's history this past year in in January of 2023. And and it was so incredible. I wasn't quite sure between Tamil Heritage Month and Taipongal I wasn't quite sure how it would go over and whether or not the Tamil community, which is already large and it's growing rapidly in Vaughan, how they would respond to it. The night that we did it earlier this year, it was spectacular. The entire atrium of the city hall, our city hall, was full with people from the Tamil community, but also from the broader community. It was colorful. It was vibrant. It was a great celebration. And I made a commitment that night that this would become a fixture in our city as an annual celebration. And so we'll be doing our second one on, as you mentioned, on January the 15th. I'm looking forward to it. Everybody is welcome. And I always tell our residents, City Hall doesn't belong to me. Mm-hmm. It belongs to the people of our community. And so I like to throw open the doors and really have a great celebration. January 21st will be your uh, and uh, Council's New Year's levy uh, at Venue Event Space in Vaughan. Come one, come all. So what exactly <laughs> is the purpose of a levy, a New Year's levy? Yeah, so it's you know it's got a it's got a long-standing tradition in, in many places around the world. We, um, from what I understand, many years ago there was one in the city of Vaughan. It kind of went away for a long time, and I brought it back this past year. We did it for the very first time in many years, um, and the turnout. We again, we didn't know what to expect. I thought maybe if a couple of hundred people show up, that'll be a good sign. We had almost a thousand residents mm-hmm. who came out. Uh, it was a great celebration on a Sunday. Breakfast was served, lots of activities for kids, and it was such a great spirit, a great community spirit. So we're doing it again this year. Different location, venue, event space on Highway 7, just east of Jane, right at Credit Stone, 9.30 in the morning until noon. Again, lots of great activities, a free complimentary breakfast for all the residents. Uh, Mayor, I'll be there. Members of council will be there. It should be a lot of fun, and I sincerely hope people come out to celebrate the new year. I want you center stage now, as you should be, and this is an opportunity for you to speak to the citizens of Vaughan and tell them what your commitment is to them for 2024. Well, the first thing I want to say is how much gratitude I have to the people of Vaughan for giving me this opportunity to serve as their mayor. It's been just over a year. I love the job. You really do get a chance to see how incredible our residents are, how great the community is, and the strong sense of genuine affection that members of council and myself and our city staff have for the people that we are serving. And I really just want everyone in the city to enjoy the very best of the festive season. Um, I think it's a great time to be together with family and friends and to recognize, again, 
what we should all be grateful for, and then look forward with optimism and hopefulness uh, to the new year and, and talk about how we can continue to grow together and work together to deliver some great outcomes for the people that we care about. So, you know, really from, from me, from my wife, Utilia, my daughters, Talia and Grace, I want to wish everybody listening a safe and happy holiday season, a Merry Christmas, and an absolutely incredible New Year. Thank you, Vaughn Mayer, Stephen Del Duca. Thank you. Thanks, Anne. If you're traveling over the holidays, your return to Canada includes a meeting with customs officers, Glenn Perkins, with a day in the life of the CBSA. The Canadian Border Service Agency is responsible for monitoring people and the flow of goods in and out of the country. Adam James is a superintendent with the CBSA. He says between January and October of this year, officers seized numerous quantities of illegal drugs and weapons. In the GTA region alone, we intercepted 49 firearms. 842 replica firearms, 63 firearm parts, and over 6,200 prohibited weapons. And that's a joint effort of our officers on our front lines, as well as our intelligence officers working hard behind the scenes. This is excellent work by those officers, but it's also scary to know that number of weapons have been seized. Yes, it is. Interdicting firearms and firearms parts is a top priority for the CBSA. It's something we consider one of the most important components of our detection capabilities is, is being able to intercept these firearms and firearm parts. Officers continually work 24-7, 365 to be able to intercept these and keep them off the streets and keep our communities safe. How do you learn about the weapons? Are the seizures through tips, intelligence that's been collected? What's the process? Um, there's a team effort in terms of that approach. We work and collaborate with other law enforcement agencies as well as other border protection agencies across the globe. Our officers also have state-of-the-art detection tool capabilities. We have x-rays that allow us to identify concealment methods in the most abstract areas and be able to identify farmer-related parts and able to interdict them. That collaborated effort, as I spoke to earlier, allows us to pinpoint higher risk shipments and shipments that might be unknown to us. When I think of guns, illegal weapons coming into the country, my mind goes to illegal drugs also being smuggled in. And again, that's something else that your frontline officers have to contend with. Yes, in the greater Toronto area, we seized over 3,000 shipments of narcotics that have come into the country. A couple of specific examples of that is we had $4.8 million worth of heroin found in a suitcase. Officers at Toronto Pearson intercepted that. Um, we had a $1.7 million worth of cocaine located in suitcases coming into Pearson International Airport. As well, officers in our commercial stream seized more than $2.3 million worth of suspected ketamine concealed in false bottoms and exhaust fan. Those are just some of the examples of our officers working hard throughout this past year, interdicting and keeping these narcotics off the streets. Obviously, I don't want you to give away the process of how you detect these, but is it drug-sniffing dogs? What's the routine? We have a multiplicity of specific detection capabilities. We do have canine units that are trained in sniffing out specific narcotics as well as firearm and firearm parts. We also have 
specific detection tools, x-rays. We have ion scans that tested the nanograms, the one thousandth of a gram for particles. So we're able to identify the contraband in its most intricate concealment methods. Adam James is a superintendent with the Canada Border Service Agency. Adam, whenever I come back from a trip overseas and I go through customs, for some reason, I get nervous. Are there telltale signs that officers look for in someone who may be smuggling something into the country? It's normal for someone to feel nervous when traveling across an international border. You're dealing with law enforcement personnel that you might not be dealing with on a day-to-day basis. So that's something our officers are already aware of. Our officers are specifically trained in interview techniques, investigative techniques in terms of being able to process information coming in and identifying those travelers that may be at higher risk than others. Not only are you helping Canadians return and, and welcoming visitors to the country, but we've seen a high turnover of refugees, whether it's from Afghanistan or from Ukraine. And you're also working with those organizations who are bringing the refugees into the country, aren't you? We are. That's a big component of what the CBSA does, our humanitarian efforts with both the Afghan and the Ukrainian populations. Just this past year alone, the GTA assisted in processing over 2,000 refugees coming in from Afghanistan, as well as almost 25,000 Ukrainian nationals arriving into Canada. Adam, your organization, the CBSA, deals with illegal guns, illegal drugs, moving people in and out of the country. And I believe between January and October of this year, it was more than 73 million travelers. And that was just 29.2 million came by air. But you're also working to make sure the border is open for business. Yes, that's true. There's a big component to the economy that's processed through the CBSA in terms of the commercial movement of goods. The CBSA is continually looking at ways to uh, facilitate the legitimate movement of goods coming into Canada as our Canadian economy depends on it. Uh, We also take that process in conjunction with uh, examining higher-risk commercial shipments that may have contraband in them. Adam, what would you say are the biggest changes you've seen, say, over the last three or four years with regards to the role that officers of the CBSA play? A specific change, maybe... In terms of what the officers do, is we, we have seen some shifts in terms of how goods come into the country. We've seen an increase in goods coming in through our commercial stream, through our courier stream. So officers have been working diligently at being able to identify higher-risk shipments through those modes. I know it because I've seen it firsthand that officers can be the brunt of frustrated passengers when there's been delays, and I'm, I'm thinking in particular at Pearson. What is the one message you would like to leave with people today with regards to the role of CBSA officers? That's a great question, and uh, well-timed in terms of the holiday season coming fastly upon us. There's always situations where delays can occur that um, even when you're traveling goods may be inspected there might be the delay in traveling just that the traveling public understand that this is a normal process to crossing the border uh, anytime you cross a border goods can be examined in the day-to-day process of a border services officer's roles this is what we do and at the end of the day we're dedicated to try and intercept uh, narcotics and firearms and firearm parts coming into the country And through that process, there is a possibility of certain delays. And I would think, especially at this time of year, holiday season, Christmas, so many travelers will be coming through the different border entry points. It's true. And having that holiday mindset in mind, there's the possibility that 
goods can be inspected and therefore like if you're bringing a holiday gift or something like that the idea is to have it unwrapped that way if an officer needs to inspect it we're not wrecking um, a perfectly wrapped gift superintendent adam james with the canada border services agency thank you for speaking with me today you're welcome Coming up, musicians join forces to tackle homelessness and the NHL teams up to support the ALS Superfund. These stories after the break on the feed. Follow us on Twitter at 1059 The Region. Ann Romer and more of the feed after the break. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to the feed. I'm Ann Romer. Former pro hockey player Mark Curtin has shared his battle with ALS, and now the NHL is helping to fight the disease. Jim Lang with that story. Friday was a big day for ALS Action Canada, something really neat. Canadian National Hockey League teams uniting to support the ALS Superfund, the hashtag NALS, and it's a great initiative marrying the the fight against ALS and the love of hockey in this country. Who better to talk about it than someone who played for two of the Canadian NHL teams, both the Maple Leafs and the Canucks, and scored his first NHL goal as a member of the Leafs on October 79 at Maple Leaf Gardens, beating Wayne Thomas, Mark Curtin, joining us in the feed today. Mark, how are you? I'm good, Jim. How are you? You've got a good memory. Remember my first goal that far along. Well, I mean, you know, you had a solid pro hockey career, both in the NHL and the AHL, and you were a teammate of Borea Salming, who unfortunately lost his battle with ALS. You're fighting it, so this is something, an initiative that's not just in in name only. This is something that's to your very soul, Mark, when you think about the marriage of these two groups getting together. Yeah, no, Friday was a huge day, and it took me about seven months to uh, get all seven Canadian NHL teams on site to support our super fund and it was a very exciting day well there's some amazing comments of support from brad Living from the gm of the maple leafs mark chipman the ceo of the jets you got some heavyweight people behind these teams yeah. who are supporting you and als action canada that's right. It was amazing how quickly they came on side because I think when you look at the fact that Borea Salming and Chris Snow had passed, well, that affected quite a few of the clubs right there. They were ready to go. It just took us a while to put the initiatives that each team is going to do in place for this season, and Friday was a good day to announce. And to me, Mark, ALS is a very misunderstood disease for a lot of Canadians. Um, they see stories like uh, Chris Noe and Boris Salming. But you and I had spoken earlier before this interview that not all ALS diagnoses are the same, correct? That's true. There is two main kinds. The one that Chris Snow has, which is a genetic form. And then there is sporadic, which 90% have. The other thing about ALS, there's no set lifeline. They... They put out the stats of two to five years as far as longevity goes. But the reality is everybody moves at a different pace. Some are slow progressors. Others are quick progressors. And I guess like anything, you have good days and bad days, right, Mark? Well, it is. Every every day is a a challenge when you have ALS because you lose the ability to use your arms and your legs. Your family becomes your arms and legs, basically, and care gives every day. 
Mark, I guess your second family would be your hockey family and the teams across the Canadian teams across the NHL. Uh, just for the listeners, try to explain the support you're receiving from these teams, uh, both on and off the ice. For starters, we started this initiative a long time ago. Jeff Jackson, when he was a player agent, and I came up with a couple of ideas. Then we approached Toronto Maple Leafs and Edmonton Oilers to get their thoughts on it. And then we took it to another level. And at the end of the day, all seven teams agreed to come up with their own initiative to raise funds and donate to the fund. And these initiatives will take place this season, for Toronto Maple Leafs being the first. And their initiative was in the Global Series in Sweden, where they raised about $80,000 with the online jersey sales of the two games that they played. Now, the Edmonton Oilers, for example, has an initiative coming up in January, which will be incredible. It's an eight-day lottery raffle of which they played four of the original teams during those eight days, and we will be getting a nice percentage of the 50-50 raffle. And some of the other clubs, uh, Jim, are doing... Uh, their skills competition, like I believe the Montreal Canadiens and Winnipeg Jets, and they will be giving proceeds to the Superfund from that. Each team, as I said, has their own initiative. And I think what's really important here is that the general public sees seven NHL teams joining arm-in-arm arm to fight for a cure for this horrendous disease. And maybe other professional leagues will stand up and notice this and do the same. Or the other NHL teams will want to get involved and we can take it to another level. The donating dollars are huge, but so is the fact that we're getting the support. And I'm going to challenge all hockey fans listening to this right now. Go to ALSActionCanada.org or you can also go to ALSSuperfund.ca. Get involved. Time. Money. Um, awareness, anything you can do to get on board with this, to hashtag NALS, is going to be huge in the fight going forward in 2024. Absolutely. And uh, the other thing about the Superfund that people may not know is we've, we've included nine or ten of the top minds in the ALS space with their researchers, clinicians, neurologists, and they're going to recommend where these funds should go as far as cutting-edge research, etc. Because the goal is to bring as many research trials as we can to Canada and get quick pathway approvals for these drugs and get these drugs out to the ALS patients. Mark, you're a good man. Uh, I'm trying to say this without getting emotional. I'm sure Boris Salming's looking down on you and smiling and so proud of you. You're doing such good work. Uh, for all Canadians, especially those battling ALS like yourself, uh, I wish you and the family nothing but the best in the holidays and hope 2024 is a good year for you and your fight against ALS. That's great, Jim, and thank you so much for having me on and, and uh, spreading the word and the advocacy. It's very much appreciated by us. Thank you. You are so welcome. Next, musicians band together to fight homelessness. Here's Christina Lavecchia. The homelessness crisis in Toronto has reached a critical point. 
Over 8,000 people are without a home to call their own. Some find shelter in the city, and other individuals struggle with hidden homelessness, temporarily living with friends or family, but without guarantee of continued residency or immediate prospects for accessing permanent housing. In response, Richard Todd, best known as the singer, songwriter, and guitarist for the band Redpath Traffic, has teamed up with Wood Green Community Services to address this urgent issue. Richard and a cast of all-stars have created the charity single, The Forgotten Homelessness, with royalty supporting the Wood Green Community Agency's Unmet Needs campaign. Richard, thank you for joining me on the feed. Thank you. Happy to be here. Let's start off by telling listeners about yourself as a musician and a little bit about your musical journey. Sure. Well, as you mentioned, I'm the singer, guitar player, and songwriter for the band Red Path Traffic, uh, and I've been playing music for almost as long as I can remember. I picked up a guitar when I was a teenager and lost all sense of reality since then. <laughs> um, yeah, and been having a great time. But I've also been a, a homeless advocate um, for some years now. And I started an initiative called Warm It Up back around 2012, 2013. And it was a grassroots effort to help support homeless people with, uh, with coffee cards so they can go in somewhere warm. It was in December, just before Christmas. Go in and get uh, warm up, have a hot drink, and just get out of the uh, cold weather for a few minutes. And we also had a uh, sock patrol component to it, and that was to hand out socks to homeless people. We had about 500, had a case of 500 socks, and we just went out into the streets of Toronto and, um, yeah, gave them out. And it was just a, a wonderful thing to do, and uh, a lot of the people who were in need were quite appreciative of, of our efforts. So this project that we worked on recently, which we'll touch on, is a great marriage between my musical aspirations and my homelessness advocacy. Listen to the Joining you on the track, The Forgotten Homelessness, are several of Toronto's top indie artists, including Chris Burkett, who is the producer. Uh, Chris is actually a past guest um, of ours and shared his personal story and his connection to the issue of homelessness. Why was it important to you to team up with Wood Green Community Services and release this charity single? Uh, I was connected with with the agency through a a friend who... uh was familiar with their work and um, I was introduced to Wood Green and to the people there and really their their passion for helping homeless people just matched mine and the unmet needs campaign uh, perfectly aligned with what we're trying to do. It was very fortuitous for us to meet at this time. Royalties from the Forgotten Homelessness will support the Wood Green Community Agency's Unmet Needs campaign. Tell us a bit about Wood Green Community Services and um, the Unmet Needs campaign for listeners who are not aware of what they do. Sure. The uh, Unmet Needs campaign by Wood Green, it's it's a program that perfectly aligns with uh, my interest in supporting homeless people, um, and uh, especially those who are struggling to find housing, uh, mental health support, employment, financial counseling. Uh, it's just a, a, such a, a great program that helps to meet Toronto's growing unmet needs. So they were the perfect agency to partner with to bring this project to life. 
To learn more about Wood Green Community Services and the Unmet Needs Campaign and to make a donation, you can visit their website at woodgreen.org unmet. While the holidays are a joyful time for many, it could add stress emotionally and financially for a lot of people. And food insecurity is now being driven by inflation and the high cost of living. And more Canadians are struggling to afford housing and food. Was this song in the works from before or was this just more of a, a more of an immediate response more recently? It was an immediate response and I'll tell you exactly what happened. Um, I was playing with my band down in a bar downtown and it was kind of an open mic night. We went up and did a couple of songs and everyone gets to go up and do a couple of songs. And this one young fellow, 22, 23 years old, went up and uh, played his two songs. Sounded great. But at the end of it, he uh, appealed to the audience for a place to stay. I uh, had nowhere to go after the night at the playing at the bar. And it really struck me personally how the Toronto arts community has been impacted by poverty and in, in this case, at least, uh, by homelessness. So the idea of writing the song was triggered by that. And I thought, well, who can speak better to the homelessness and the, and, and, and the issues, uh, the, the challenges, rather, faced by the Toronto arts community by independent artists? So we brought the group together, and that's, what, that's really where it started, was with that young man on stage. And how did you uh, connect with the other artists who are part of the group, like Chris and, um, and other artists who are singing on the track? Uh, well, most of it was through Chris himself, because many of these people either knew him or were connected to him uh, professionally. He had worked with them before as a producer or a musician. Um, so it was very easy uh, to uh, get people together uh, who are also very passionate about this same issue. Where can listeners purchase and download their copy of The Forgotten Homelessness? Where should they go? Uh, well, if they'd like to stream it, it's on Spotify. Um, I think you can only purchase it, download it through Apple Music. Um, you can get it through Amazon Music. Uh, all of the online streaming platforms have it. Um, so yes, please stream because every stream counts to help uh, fulfill our mission of supporting people who are in need. Richard, thank you for taking the time to speak with me and happy holidays. And thank you. Same to you. Musicians in York Region now have another rehearsal and performance space. Shaliza Bacchus takes us there. It's safe to say that the music scene in York Region is unique and there is so much local talent to be found right in our backyards, as you've heard right here on 105.9 this year. You may think there isn't a music quote-unquote hub here in the region, but Mike Capobianco has just the space for you. He joins us now to tell us all about it. Welcome to the feed, Mike. Hi, Shalita. Thank you so much for joining me. Okay, so you've got this music hub located in Newmarket, and it wasn't always yours. So tell us the story about it. Uh, well, the, previously this place was called uh, The Jam Spot. Currently we've changed it to just The Spot. It's been around for 14 years. Uh, the previous owner, Max, built this place. I uh, did an amazing job. It's been, it's been a hub, like I said, for about 14 years now. It has nine rehearsal rooms, so more than enough space wow. for, for a lot of bands to come and practice. Uh, there's also a small venue in the front. I've been in bands for almost 20 years, and we've all played here. Uh, the sound is great. Vibes are all wonderful. It's, it's so exciting from the, from the other end of it now. We've uh, had all kinds of plans uh, on renovating, and that's already begun. We built the stage out a little bit. We are going to take down a couple of walls, expand the area. We're looking to get the place licensed. That's all undergoing right now. So exciting, overwhelming, a whole lot of things all at once. <laughs> 
Well, definitely. And I want to backtrack a little bit as to what you said. You're talking about the other side of things. So you've performed in that space. You've rehearsed in that space before. Yes, absolutely. This, Like I said, having this place here has just been uh, an amazing thing for not only myself. I mean, I've been in numerous bands over the years, but um, it's, it's always been a packed house with all kinds of music. I mean, I, I play in a lot of punk bands and, and a lot of my friends play in similar sort of bands. It's a lot of loud, uh, loud rock coming out of there, but... Now that I'm here, I'm hearing a lot of uh, more more classic rock, some pop music. Um, yeah, just amazing the, the, the bands and the sounds that these bands are creating out of here. And I just want the, this stage to be open for, for everyone to perform on. Definitely. And tell me a little bit about what the local music scene means to you now that you've seen it from both sides. How do you feel as a musician yourself and then being someone who can support all of this local talent right here in York Region? I mean, uh, I already said the word overwhelming because that's been uh, a big part of it so far. There's just so much more to the music scene than I had ever anticipated. Like I said, playing in, in bands that I have, I wouldn't say a small community, but comparative to, to uh, everything that's out there, it's just huge. So to have a spot, name the spot, for everyone to come and play, I think that's, uh, that'll be huge for everybody because it, it is a venue first. That's something that I want to promote. We've played in a lot of bars, and a lot of bars have been really gracious in letting us play and make our noise there. But to have a place that is a venue first, and like I said, we're looking to have it licensed, so that would be a bonus moving forward. Again, we're set up to sound great, to look great. We just got a new lighting system. Like I said, with expanding the stage, it feels great. There's more room up there. Um, we, We really want it to be comfortable for all the bands, all performers. And Mike, tell me a little bit about what gave you the inspiration to make this purchase slash investment. That's a good question because I got to be honest, it wasn't something that had ever really crossed my mind. I've never been on this side of uh, the music scene before, but it's merely a conversation with the previous owner who uh, told me after all these years, he had kind of worn himself out a little bit, was looking for a change. I took that home with me and talked to my wife about it and I realized that maybe we were up for a change too. And then speaking to so many more people in the community, um, realizing how passionate this community is, everybody wants to be a part of this. It really, um, really brought it together for us. This is something we wanted to do, any way that we can help to keep this place running, because the, the love here for, for being a new owner and keeping it going has been amazing. Definitely sounds amazing. And I congratulate you on all that success, because it's definitely hard to try and make that pivot. Yes, for sure. But uh, it's been just so, so, uh, like I said, overwhelming with all the love that we've been getting from this community that, again, is just much bigger than I had uh, ever anticipated. That is definitely yeah. true, 100%. And there is so much talent, as I said, that comes from right here in York Region. So what would you say to open up the space to them or to let them know that it exists? Well, I would, I would tell you to, uh, to give us a call. Come on by. Our phone number is 905-898-2JAM or 2526. Uh, we are at 1166 Gorham Street in Newmarket. Doors are open from 12 o'clock till sometimes 2 a.m. Uh, we're, we're always here, myself and, uh, and Noah. Uh, we've been running this place. I would just love to, to show it off to people. Again, most people maybe hadn't seen it yet. All nine rooms are equipped with amps and drums and a PA. So basically bring your guitar, bring your instruments. Definitely. We're excited for that. So, Mike, thank you so much for joining me. We wish you all the best for the new year. And definitely check out this space if you are a local artist here in York Region. It is definitely 
worth the drive up to Newmarket rather than driving down to the city to try and find a rehearsal space. It looks, mm. it seems like so much fun, and I'm sure it's just going to go only up from here under your management, Mike. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. If you missed any part of the feed, please go to 1059theregion.com or wherever you get your favorite podcast, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. Please join me for the feed next on Saturday, January the 6th, 2024. Happy holidays, everyone, and thank you so much for listening.